So I'm going to have someone else read from Luke's gospel uh, to you. And so, Jim, if you make your way up here, Luke chapter 2 is where you want to open. For extra credit, you can open to Isaiah chapter 9 and Ephesians 2 as well, but Luke 2 will suffice. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. I came across a quote this last week. It's very Christmassy. Life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, and does this or that or the other things that are really of no consequence. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. Not very festive, I realize. It's written in the 1940s in Germany by a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a young pastor in his late 30s who found himself imprisoned in a concentration camp during the Christmas season of 1941. He was there because of the opposition, public opposition he had towards Hitler himself. I've mentioned him before because you might remember that he fled Germany at the encouragement of friends he had in New York City who helped him to get on a boat and travel across the Atlantic in order to arrive there in safety in New York. But you remember he was only there about a week before he turned around and went back, leaving only a note for his friends saying that if I'm not willing to pastor these people and love them in the darkest of moments, then I don't deserve and am not worthy to pastor them in future moments. So he went back to Germany and it ended up costing him his freedom. And so in the 1941 cold winter, his letters that were written to his parents to his friends, and to his fiance, are all recorded for us and kept there preserved and have been placed inside a Christmas book. It is the most depressing Christmas book I've ever read in my life because it's written from a perspective that's really, uh, really tragic, that's entering into a terribly broken period of our history, a, a terribly broken experience that this man Bonhoeffer was experiencing. Uh, for Bonhoeffer, waiting was more than just a central theme of the Advent season leading up to Christmas. The anticipation 
It was the central theme of his life experience as he found himself waiting for a moment to be released from this wretched prison, a concentration camp that he was being held in. Unfortunately, a wretched prison he not, would not find his way out of. He writes letters to his fiancée, his beloved Maria, and he, he writes of his heartache over the news that he'd receive about the loss of life of some of his dear friends who get caught in the crossfire of the war that's raging in his country, even news of his own parents' home being bombed during the war. It was, it was heartbreaking what he would go through. He would have no option, really, except to pray and to write while locked up in this concentration camp. There's this helplessness in his situation that would begin to be seen by him as a parallel to Advent to the Christmas anticipation leading up to the arrival of Jesus. There was a helplessness that he starts in his writings to compare to the way that we wait in anticipation for our deliverer Jesus to arrive, waiting for redemption and restoration. And so he wrote his best friend the words I quoted to you. He wrote him saying, Life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, and does this or that or the other thing that seem to be of no consequence because the door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. His point is that the season of Advent is meant to remind us that what we all hope for, all that we live in tension and waiting for, is found in the one who we long to arrive and free us from our broken experience, who can walk up and unlock and open a way for us to walk forward into a brighter future. That that was the hope of the world leading to leading up to Jesus' first arrival, that first advent. The hope of the world was that someone would come from heaven, from outside, and open a way to peace and love, to joy, to hope again. And that is the longing that exists inside every follower of Jesus still today, that we're waiting for a second advent, a second arrival of Jesus to do that very thing. We're waiting on a good God. We live in attention, kind of like Bonhoeffer does in a far lesser degree. But that's what he was touching on, is that we all live in a tension, living in a broken world, waiting for a good God. It's the longing of ancient Israel waiting for Messiah. It's the longing of every follower of Jesus, really of all of creation, waiting, waiting for someone to return and to restore the world back into its proper function. In another one of his letters, Bonhoeffer, he would pen these words. He, he would say, the Advent season is a season of waiting, but our whole life is an Advent season. That is, our whole life is a season of waiting for the last arrival, for the last Advent for the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. You see, that's what Advent is. Remember, Advent simply means coming or arrival. We steal it from the Latin language, a word adventus. And the world now uses it to refer to the four-week period leading up to Christmas, leading up to the first Advent where God would arrive, his coming is celebrated, where he would arrive in humility to come in the form of a child, to come to suffer and die. But all of the world doesn't just do this, observe Advent looking back to that arrival. We also simultaneously are looking forward to a future return of Jesus, his second Advent, if you will, his second coming that he comes in glory to make the world right again. And so the goal for us is we're now in week two of a four-part little series and four-week process of leading up to Jesus' arrival. The goal for us is that we together would, would, in celebration and anticipation, slow down to remember Jesus, our Savior, 
and king. And, and when we do that, we'll tackle four different themes. Last week, if you were here, we talked about hope. Today, we talk about peace. We'll talk about joy next week and then love to wrap up this series. They are the four themes, traditionally, of Advent, uh, something that followers of Jesus have done for 1,500 plus years throughout history. And we're going to look at each of these themes. So today, we're looking at peace. We're going to look at it from three angles, one being that we can observe in our world that our world is void of real peace. We observe that, but then we'll also remember, we'll remember something, not just observing a broken world, but we're remembering what Jesus secured for us, that he secured peace for us when he first came at his first advent. And then we look forward in anticipation. We observe, we remember, and then we long for Jesus' return where he will usher us into an eternal experience of peace. So today, that's what we talk about is the topic of peace. You know, a world, the world that you and I live in, is a world that we would probably all agree is a world that's void of peace. Like, it's, it's, it just doesn't exist. It's so very fleeting. We get little tastes, taste, excuse me, tastes, sure, little tastes of it. I sound like my four-year-old. But a world before Jesus' first coming was devoid of peace. It was, it was world-dominating empire followed by new-dominating empire followed by new-dominating empire, and the people of God finding themselves yet again suppressed, finding themselves yet again waiting for a deliverer, waiting for someone to establish real peace. And then for us today, it's true, as we wait for a second coming to judge the world and make things right again, we're still living in a world that's void of peace. And for many in our world, in the past two years, I think we describe our, our two-year experience, we would describe it as, as being marred by division and anxiety. And division is the external void of peace. That there's not peace, there's not unity, there's division in place of it. And anxiety is really the internal experience of that reality, of division in place of peace. In fact, that's literally what, by definition, anxiety is. It means to divide the mind. That's just simplest. When you look at the entomology of the word anxiety, it just means to divide the mind. It's, it's what we've experienced in the last two years, division externally and internally, that we've longed for peace. Because truly, our world, even today, is void of peace. And you'll hear me say this several times today, that, that for us, if you're a follower of Jesus, our hope, or excuse me, our peace is the byproduct of our trust in Jesus' promises and our experience of Jesus' presence. Our peace is the byproduct of our trust in his promises and our experience of his presence, the presence of the one who is called by the prophet Isaiah, the Prince of Peace. The one whom the angels pronounced in what Jim just read you, at the first arrival, the first advent of Jesus, they pronounced and said, glory to God in the highest of heavens and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. You see, I don't have some path for peace, like four principles that will secure peace for you. I don't have some pathway to give you today for peace because peace is not an object. There's nothing that leads you to the object of peace. What I want to do instead is to point you towards the place that you find peace. Peace is found in a person. Peace is found in our finding our significance and security in a person, in the person of Jesus. I mean, what would it look like? Really imagine, what would it look like in our world right now, today, if there was peace in our world? I was naive enough to think that the arrival of the pandemic was an opportunity for people to come together. 
Because we're all in this together. We're all nervous. Initially, it was like, I don't know if this is SARS or Ebola or a household cold. Like, none of us knew anything. And so all of us can remember those early days of of boldly going where no man had gone back to a grocery store, right? Like, and going in and, and feeling nervous and looking at other people and seeing that they felt frantic and scared too. I thought, this is our moment. It's gonna reunite our country. It's gonna reunite people around the world. We'll lock arms because we're all in this together. It's a common bond. It's anything but a bond. What it's done is just created more division. In fact, the pandemic, it's, it's exposed us. It's, ex- it's exposed to us so much of our selfishness and brokenness. And, and then it's further compounded divides that existed in our culture. And then since COVID's arrival, it seems like the world has been determined to find more reasons to divide because every new thing that's happened just became a new dividing line rather than an opportunity to pull people together. Now, based on your opinions, there's a new dividing line, your opinions regarding the virus, or based on whether or not you rode a donkey or an elephant towards an election poll, or even if you just chose to mail in a ballot, even that could be a new dividing line for some people. Where you stand on gender issues or law enforcement or racism, what you think about vaccines or elections or masks in schools all became new dividing lines. And what it is done to our country is we've become so tribal and siloed in the past two years that for us to be even disagreed with anymore, we feel like we're personally attacked. And so we pull back even more and we're more aggressive towards the other side. I mean, what would it look like to experience peace in our world today? Because we're so far removed from it. What would it look like to experience peace in our world amidst what is for many of us the most divided and broken thing we've ever seen in our world, most divided and broken season we've ever seen in our world, in our country, in our local community, even in our churches, and even in our friend groups. We're even amongst friends. We're dodging some of these conversations because we know this is going to create a new dividing line and this could be the end of the era of our friendship because we've, we as a culture and a community have become so very divided. Not just as a culture or a country. Now, now think about you personally. What would peace look like for you today, personally, right now? For you personally and, and internally? A vacancy and void of peace is not just what we're watching play out in our culture and community right now. A vacancy and void of peace is what many of us have experienced personally in these last two years. You might recall me quoting this to you last week as we talked about the idea of hope, but quoting from a study that was published in February of 2021 reporting that during the pandemic, and I quote, about four in 10 adults in the U.S. reported symptoms of anxiety and depressive disorder, a share that is largely consistent up from one in 10 adults. Think about that. Up from one in 10 adults who had reported these same symptoms in 2019. That four times over, more people are suffering from anxiety in this season. And listen, I'm by no means throwing shade at anyone who's found yourself having a bout of anxiety during this stretch of time. I myself, I've had my own struggles with anxiety. I'm comforted by the fact that I think Jesus faced anxiety. Jesus found himself in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood when he collapsed to the floor and said, I think that I die here of sorrow. He's not melodramatic in that moment. Hematrodosis is a medical condition where you have such extreme anxiety because of pressure that you face and strain on your body and your mind that your body hemorrhages blood through your pores. 
It's an incredibly excruciatingly painful thing to go through, but it's something that's very rare, but still a medical condition today when someone is under such extreme pressure and anxiety. If even Jesus knows those feelings, then it's just one more reason to take those feelings to him. Think about this. In in Isaiah, I quoted to you that it refers to, the prophet does, he refers to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. He also refers to him as the Wonderful Counselor. The thing that makes a counselor good and wonderful is when he understands your experience because he's walked through that pathway as well. And he can sit with you and counsel and encourage and lead you through that season because he's already walked that path. And that's true of Jesus, even when it comes to these things. He is our wonderful counselor. No, I'm not throwing shade or shame in anyone's direction because of maybe even the lack of peace you've experienced in your own heart. I'm just merely pointing out and stating the obvious that our world needs peace and our own hearts need it as well. But hear me today that our peace is the byproduct of our trust in his promises and our experience of his presence. Our peace is not found in a thing, nor is it found in the accumulation of things or the accumulation of money or the security that comes from being in power. Listen, if it was, if our peace was found in the accumulation of stuff or of wealth, well, then our peace would be as up and down as the market is. Our peace would rise and fall with the housing market. Our peace would rise and fall with the NASDAQ. Our peace would rise and fall, and for so many, that's true. But if my security and significance is found in a person, not in a thing or an accumulation of things, not even in power, in influence, that gives me a sense of control, that makes me feel at peace and at rest, If instead my peace and security is found in a person, the person of Jesus, my security and significance locked up in him and what he's already done for me at his first advent, his first coming, by suffering and dying, rising from the dead, proving that his promises are true, proving that he'll make good on his promises, that sin, that that suffering, that that, uh, terrible betrayal, that pain that hell itself could not stop him from fulfilling those promises, then if I anchor my peace in him rather than on things or money or power that I'm trying to make feel, trying to use and manipulate to make me feel secure, if I'm not driven by those things and instead I turn to Jesus, the peace that I can find and experience in not just a wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, but a mighty God and an everlasting father that I turn to is such an incredible truth and reality because it's not just an ethereal concept. Our peace is the byproduct of our trust in who he is, his promises, and his presence being with us, our experience of that presence, knowing that he's with us and for us. Listen, our world is void of peace, but the second thing we do is not just observe the brokenness of our world during Advent, we also remember Jesus' arrival, how it secured our peace. That's the second thing. So imagine with me, remember with me what Jesus did. Remember with me what the angels sang as they approached the shepherds on that that blessed night we call it. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace has a global understanding to it. 
Around the world, you could ask anyone, what does peace mean? Well, it means a freedom from conflict or strife. People would describe it from all over the world as the absence of war. We want to be in an era of peace, a time of peace. It means a time without conflict or war. And in the Bible, it does describe, the, the biblical words that are used to describe peace, they do describe a freedom from conflict, but there's more to it than just that. There's another side to the words that the Bible uses. It, it includes the, the, the teaching, the belief that there's the presence of something better, not just the freedom from conflict, but the presence of something better that makes you whole again, that makes you well again. In the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word shalom, that the peace of God is the shalom of God. It's not just a freedom from conflict. It's talking about more than that, about something being possible that makes you whole and complete again. In the New Testament, it's a Greek word. It's irene. And these two words, what they communicate in the simplest of terms is a completeness and a wholeness, not just a freedom from conflict, but things being right again, things being whole again, things being in union and harmony again. It's one of the ways that people will use to describe this word shalom is harmony. There's something super incredible and beautiful about hearing uh, when you hear people sing together in true harmony. When one person sings a melody and someone attaches to it a harmony, there's something about it that draws us in, that's captivating, that's beautiful. That the shalom of God is, is that kind of an experience of harmony within my own heart, of harmony within my own relationships, of harmony within our own world, where the, the world can sing together and the song that we sing is beautiful. That my own heart can sing a melody that's beautiful and that's life-giving. The word, uh, the word in Hebrew, the word shalom, it can refer to a stone that, that's without flaws or, or that has no cracks, that's a whole shape. It can also be used to describe a completed wall, that uh, a stone wall that has no gaps in it, that is missing no bricks. It's shalom, it's completed, it's whole is the idea. Like I did last week, I'll quote to you from Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey, who runs the Bible Project. He said it this way, and I quote, Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, of wholeness. We can bridge a gap from talking walls and things to now talking person. A person, because for us as people, we, we are invited to experience the shalom, the peace of God, and shalom recognizes that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations, and when any of those are out of alignment or wobble off course or are missing from our lives, something inside of us begins to break down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. It needs the shalom of God. It's why David, when he approached King David in the Old Testament, when he approached the battlefield where Goliath stood on the other side of the valley, he looked at his own brothers and asked them how their shalom was. How was how your mind? How is your heart? How is your body as you're preparing for war? How is everything about you? Are you complete and whole or are you lost and fragmented in this moment? Hear me on this. Shalom is not just about the retaining wall that you completed early in the, the quarantine era. It's not just about completing something, putting all these pieces together. It's not even just about an internal state of being that we can find ourselves in. 
The word also has a verb form, and sorry I'm getting nerdy with you this morning about this, but a verb form in Hebrew that describes the action of bringing peace, of bringing wholeness, of bringing completion. It's 1 Kings chapter 9 where it says that when Solomon finished the temple, it described it as he brought shalom. That's what it did. It's used when it describes him completing the temple. He shalomed it. He brought it all together. It was completed. It's Exodus 22, talking about shalom is used in reference with living in harmony with your neighbor. It gives a great example. It says if you've got a wild animal that goes to your neighbor's yard and out in his fields and wreaks havoc and eats his grain and knocks things over, well, then you need to make shalom again by restoring what is broken, what's been ruined, what's been lost, what was taken. It's in Proverbs chapter 16, shalom is used to describe restoration and wholeness in place of brokenness in human relationships. When there's a divide between us, that shalom means pulling people back together in reconciliation. In fact, it's even used in the Old Testament when kings would make shalom in the Bible, they'd make a peace covenant with another king. It doesn't mean that they were just agreeing to stop fighting, please hear me. It also means that they were starting to work together for each other's benefit. It wasn't just we won't fight with each other, but it was instead also a promise that we work together now for each other's benefit. That's what God created the world in, in a state of shalom, of undivided wholeness and peace. That's what the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was commissioned with. They were supposed to go and cultivate that kind of peace in the world. Look at the Old Testament. They failed at that job, didn't they? Again and again. They compounded the world's brokenness instead of bringing shalom. So the prophet Isaiah steps back in a moment and begins to pen things some 700 years before the time of Christ, where he's now looking forward to a future king who would be called the Prince of Shalom, who would finally usher in an unending era of peace. And so he writes the famous words Isaiah the prophet does in chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness, he said, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, Isaiah said, even forever. And then he finishes, he says, the zeal, the the passionate, fervent desire of the Lord of hosts has promised to perform this. Isaiah said that when Almighty God, who is our everlasting Father, when he finally arrives here to establish shalom, peace, within creation once and for all, that his reign, when he comes, his reign would bring that kind of shalom with no end, where he'd make everything that's gone wrong and is wrong, that he'd make it right again. When he'd heal all that's broken. This is why Jesus' birth in in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of peace. This is why the angel said, peace on those in whom his favor rests. Because finally the Prince of Peace had come to establish peace, shalom, and creation again. The New Testament will then explain that the glory of God came down among us. I love how John says it in chapter 1. That that God took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood so we could behold his glory. 
And when he did, he did it to leave more than an example for us. Please know this. If, if you're new to the Christian message and you're just kind of observing and thinking these things through, you need to know that Jesus didn't come to leave us merely an example to follow. If he was only an example, he'd crush us. No, he came here, he left heaven, he did that to leave us a substitute and a savior who could establish peace again between God and man once and for all. In fact, Romans chapter five says it beautifully. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Shalom, it it means being made whole again personally, and it means complete restoration relationally. We can think of it kind of this way. Think of it this way. Shalom is the unwinding or even the rewinding of sin's impact on my life, on my relationships with people, on my relationships with creation, on my relationship with God. It is the unwinding, even the rewinding on sin's impact on all of those areas. That's what Jesus promised to bring. That is who our Prince of Peace is. Think back to Eden with me, where sin forever marred the beauty of the place that God made and called so good. Where sin has taken such deep root, not just within creation, but within our own lives, that we could never reach back to, to attain perfection or wholeness again. In fact, God then give, gives laws to his people, and those laws were to prove that, that we could never make ourselves good enough again. You see, our laws, the law of God in the Old Testament, they, they were not given to prove your goodness. They were given to prove our badness, our brokenness. The Bible says that no one is justified by the keeping of the law, but the law was given as a mirror for us. And what it shows to us, it exposes to us, is our own brokenness, my deep need for help, my need for a savior, my need for forgiveness and healing. I need someone from the outside to come in and step into my life and fix and touch and heal to make it right again. I need a savior. I need Jesus. Remember, the gospel tells me that I'm far worse than I ever imagined, and yet simultaneously, I'm far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. That's the Christian message, that I'm more jacked up than I thought, and yet somehow simultaneously, also more loved by God than I'd ever hoped or dreamed to be true. That's the gospel message. The gospel completely levels the playing field in that we are all the same, so deeply broken, all deserving of judgment, all requiring a substitute, all of me in need of grace. All of us sitting here going, so then what's the answer? What, what does creation, what does society, what does a person really need? And the answer is not a what. The answer is a who. Who we need is the Prince of Peace. Who we need is the everlasting Father, the Almighty God, the wonderful Counselor who will leave heaven to step into darkness and be the great light. We need what Christmas promised us. Remember the fall, it didn't diminish God's love for this world. It did, however, make his love far more costly because it would cost him the life of his son. God's not interested in just reform. It's rebirth that Jesus taught about. Full-blown recreation of who we are is what he's committed to. 
He, he will not only rescue and redeem us, but he's, he's vowed to restore us once again fully into the image of God, fully to be the people that he created us to be. The Prince of Peace will bring the shalom of God to reign forever in creation, in society, and in my own heart personally. But to experience the shalom, the peace of God. It's not some state of euphoria that you enter and never leave from. To find peace with God is not some place that you enter, some frame of mind that you, you, you step into that you never are shaken from. It's not that at all. The path back to peace, to the shalom of God, involves turning back to a person. Not just some frame of mind and experience or disembodied thing. It's turning back to a person. This kind of peace is the byproduct of something. It's the byproduct of our faith in someone. Isaiah 26, 3, I love how it says it. The prophet Isaiah, again, he says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed, is fixed on you because he trusts in you. It's Ephesians chapter 2 that says that Jesus himself is our peace. That peace is a person. It's found in a person, the Prince of Peace. Think even of what Paul the Apostle would write to the church in Philippi in the first century. He would write to them and describe the implications of that, of Jesus being our peace. When he would tell the church, he'd say, then be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And when you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He points the people back to their remembrance of Jesus, their peace. Turn towards Jesus in prayer. When you're anxious, turn to him in prayer. Prayer reminds me in those moments, and I have moments like this, that God is there, that he cares, that he's capable, that I'm not alone. But did you notice in what Paul promises? He doesn't promise an explanation. He doesn't promise even a change in circumstances. This is not like some doctor's prescription, like, hey, take two of these, call me in the morning, it should be good. That's not it at all. What he does tell them, though, is that prayer is the expression of trust that paves the way for the experience of peace. That prayer really is an expression of trust, turning away from our circumstances and towards the one that we believe we find our peace in. Our security and significance is wrapped up in him. So I'll look away from my bank account. I'll look away from a stock market. I'll look away from the housing market. I'll look away from my influence, my power, my sense of control. I'll look away from all of that because it's all up and down. And I'll look towards a person who I find my significance and security in. And it's as secure as nails were that held him to a cross. That is where I look. Prayer is the expression of trust that paves the way for the experience of the peace of God that Jesus gives to us. In fact, Jesus also spoke up on this. Paul wasn't the only one to give the cure for worry. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6. Just, just close your eyes and listen to what he says. He says, don't worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food, drink, and clothes. Doesn't life consist of more than food and clothing? Look at the birds. They don't need to plant or harvest or put food in barns because your heavenly father feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than they are. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Of course not. And why worry about your clothes? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work to make their clothing, yet Solomon, the great king in all his glory, was not dressed as beautifully as they are, and if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, 
Won't he more surely care for you? You have so little faith. So don't worry about having enough food or drink or clothing. Why be like the pagans who are so deeply concerned about all those things? Your heavenly father already knows all your needs and he will give you all you need from day to day if you live for him and make the kingdom of God your primary concern. So don't worry, Jesus said, about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Jesus was reminding them to have an awareness of God at all times because this kind of peace is the byproduct of something. It's the byproduct of faith and connection to someone. He keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on him because he trusts in him, Jesus, who is our peace. Our peace, it's the byproduct of our trust in his promise and our experience of his presence. The amazing thing is that Isaiah, early in his writing, he would say that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. By midway through his writing, he will say of the people who will be present to see Jesus walk the earth and to go and proclaim what Jesus has accomplished, that, that it says, he writes of them, he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace has come, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. But then at the end of Isaiah, he prophetically describes the way in which God promises to give us peace through Jesus. I'll quote to you from Isaiah 53. Isaiah writes, he says, he was despised and rejected by mankind. How does God secure our peace? How how does the way in which he promises to give us peace through Jesus, how will it be done? He was despised, Jesus was, and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. Our peace was purchased by Jesus on a cross, where he in fulfillment of heaven's promise that echoed from the Garden of Eden itself would suffer and die the most gruesome of deaths in my place. And the most shocking thing is, is that Jesus would be treated in that moment as an enemy so that I could be received in his place as a son. That he would receive many sons and daughters into glory. Doesn't it remind you of that old carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Oh, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconcile. Joyful all ye nations, rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild, he laid his glory by. Born that men no more would die. Born to raise us from the earth. Born to give us a second birth. Glory to our newborn king. It's clear, it's easy to observe around us that the world's void of real peace. It's so good for us to remember that Jesus' first advent purchased and secured for us our peace. 
but we finish just very quickly with me just reminding you to long for a second advent, a promised arrival of Jesus coming to bring us into a future peace, a future experience of the beauty of the shalom of God for all of eternity. You can close your Bible here. You see, the purpose of this season of us leading up to Christmas is to turn our minds to what happened at the first coming of Jesus, but it's to simultaneously not just turn our minds that way, but awaken our hearts to the hope that we have in Jesus' second coming, that we turn and look ahead to the one who promises that he will arrive one day and say and pronounce, behold, I make all things new again. The one who promises really to take us back to Eden, to a world that sin has not marred, where wrongs are made right, where sorrow is no more, where tears are wiped away, where everything sad becomes untrue. Jesus said in John 14 to his friends, he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. I hope you're aware that the storyline of the book is not that one day we go to heaven when we die. The storyline of the book is that heaven comes here, that heaven is coming back here, not that we are going there, but that heaven is coming here. It's more than just the heavenly city coming down and colliding with the redeemed and restored earth that's right again, that's whole again. It's that heaven is the existence we will share here on earth with God when the earth, when society, when we ourselves are made right and whole again, when the shalom of God is realized and experienced forever. We long for that day for Jesus' return where we forever experience peace, the shalom of God. That's what we long for. That's what we look forward to. Advent turns our minds to his first arrival, but it awakens our hearts to the hope that we have in his return, our hope of being with him, our hope of future glory and the beauty of heaven, of the place that biblical authors described as having streets paved with gold. And maybe you think that's literal. I tend to think it's figurative and poetic. And if that's the case, then the statement is telling me that the things that my present world values and treasures most will be so commonplace in the age to come that when we walk on it, we won't even stop to pick it up. In other words, what the world regards as the most beautiful and precious and scarce of things won't even stand out or seem significant in the beauty of what's ahead of us. Because beauty will be defined, redefined for us. The standard of what takes our breath away will even be reset and elevated when we stand with him in the age to come. That's what the Bible paints for us. I think heaven will look and feel a lot like the Garden of Eden did, like our world looked before sin corrupted it, and that we enjoy it for all of eternity, not floating in the clouds, not some out-of-body experience, but together with the Prince of Peace for eternity. You know, the crazy thing is that the Bible really doesn't honestly give us much detail as to what we do in heaven. It does, however, make it abundantly clear who will be in heaven the people of God united with God, and it makes it abundantly clear, it's crystal clear, communicating what will not be in heaven. Those are the two most important things, I think, for us to know. The two most important things is that that we will be with God and that the brokenness of this world will not be present there any longer. What will not be there? What will not be there is chaos or evil. At the end of the book, it says that there will be no more sea. It doesn't mean an ocean. 
the sea in the ancient world, around the world, all these ancient groups, the Tehom, the, the, the Abyssalo, the, the abyss, the sea was the, viewed in the ancient world as the hotbed of chaos and evil, that evil emerged from the sea, this terrifying unknown place. What your Bible's telling you with no more sea is that there's no more chaos or evil in our future with him. It also says that, that there will be no more conflict, no more division, because even it says in poetic language, the lion and the lamb will lie together in the age to come. It's telling us that no one wakes up hungry in heaven or cold or isolated, nor lonely or crippled or ill or anxious or afraid or ashamed. There will never be another racial divide or civil unrest or war again. There will never again, never again be exploitation or injustice or any form of brokenness again. No human will ever utter the words COVID, pandemic, or cancer again. No friend will prepare a eulogy again. No parent will hold a stillborn child again. No husband will bury their wife again. No wife will bury their husband again. No person will wake up in hopeless desperation ever again. Do you understand the joys of heaven will be so deeply rooted in the fact that we are with God and that we are freed from sin's tyranny? That the shalom of God will be your eternal experience when creation is reunited once again with the Prince of Peace himself. And so, Jesus, we remember you. Jesus, we turn your direction. You are our peace. We live in a broken world, and Jesus, our own lives are deeply broken. And our own tendency is to ride the wave with the world of peace and unrest, of peace then anxiety, of up and down, up and down. But Jesus, today, we look towards you. We look back to your first arrival and how you secured peace for us. You purchased it for us. That we with confidence can find our significance and security, Jesus and you. Thank you for what we celebrate and what we remember at this time of year, Jesus, your fulfillment of your promise to come to rescue and redeem us, to have the chastisement of our peace laid upon your back and your shoulders on your hands and feet. And Jesus, our hearts are awakened. We remember afresh today our future. Jesus, we long to be in a forever eternal state of peace of shalom, of things being whole and complete again, of us being with you again, of us being freed from the tyranny of sin, sickness, suffering, and death once and for all. Jesus, that is the hope of all of us. All of us who name the name of Jesus, all of us who follow you, Jesus, that is our hope to be with once and for all the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords.